All right, all right. The foghorn means it is time for the Cabra Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, we're just back from a couple days at sea aboard the carrier USS Gerald R. Ford, now in the early stages of her first deployment. We'll hear from a variety of those on board the Ford, including the strike group, ship and air wing commanders, as well as some great insight as to how the aircraft launch and recovery systems are working. But first, here's a look at this week's naval news. The USS Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group continued operations in the Sea of Japan in early October, maneuvering with warships from Japan and South Korea. The cruiser Chancellorsville on October 6th conducted a ballistic missile defense exercise in the Sea of Japan with the Japanese destroyer Chokai and Korean destroyer Sejong the Great, all equipped with the Aegis combat system. The exercises are part of an apparent tit-for-tat cycle with North Korea, who has fired 12 ballistic missiles in late September and early October, some after the Reagan began a visit to the Republic of Korea in late September. All the missile launches, dubbed test launches by North Korea, as the missiles are not carrying warheads, are seen as provocative. One of the missiles flew over Japan itself. In another sea power demonstration, this time in the South China Sea, the U.S. destroyer Higgins operated with the Japanese helicopter carrier Izumo, destroyer Takanami, and a submarine along with Canadian frigates Vancouver and Winnipeg. In the United Kingdom, the British aircraft carrier HMS Prince of Wales got underway from Portsmouth Naval Base late October 7th, headed for dry docking in Orsyth, Scotland, to repair her damaged propeller shaft. No timeline for repairs has yet been announced by the Royal Navy. Meanwhile, the sister ship, HMS Queen Elizabeth is operating off the U.S. East Coast, having replaced the Prince of Wales for a U.S. deployment. Eastern Shipbuilding has dropped its protest of the award of future U.S. Coast Guard offshore patrol cutters to competitors Austal USA. The service announced October 5th that Austal can move ahead with detailed design of the OPC. Austal in June won the competition to build OPCs 5 through 15 after the Coast Guard rebid the program due to problems with Eastern's construction of the first ships. The contract won for, by Austal is for one ship with options for 11 more at a potential value of over $3.3 billion. The Coast Guard plans to buy a total of 25 OPCs to replace older cutters. In new ship news, the destroyer Lena Sutcliffe-Higby, DDG-123, completed her acceptance trials October 6th. Next up for the ship, built at Huntington Ingalls Industries, Ingalls Shipbuilding Yard in Pascagoula, Mississippi, will be delivery to the U.S. Navy, followed by commissioning into service. A keel ceremony for the multi-mission salvage tug Saginaw Ojibwe Anishinaabek, TATS-8, was held October 3rd at Bollinger's Homa Shipyard in Homa, Louisiana. The Anishinaabek is the third of five Navajo-class ships being built by Bollinger for the U.S. Navy. Five more in the class will be built by Austal USA in Mobile, Alabama. And a kill ceremony for the yet-to-be-named Oceanographic Survey Ship, TAGS-67, was held October 4th at Halter Marine in Pascagoula. The survey ship, as well as the Navajo-class salvage tugs, will be operated by the Navy's Military Sealift Command. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Well, as we said at the top, this week I spent the better part of two days 
on board the aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford, as the ship was in the early stages of a limited gold cruise intended to prove out much of the carrier's operating systems with the ships and aircraft of a strike group. Today's podcast is a departure for us as we took part in a number of interviews with key people on the ship. We'll play for you some of the highlights from those comments. First up is Rear Admiral Gregory Huffman, commander of Carrier Strike Group 12. Huffman and his staff are embarked aboard the Ford, and he sets the stage for us at the beginning of this cruise. Uh, I'm Rear Admiral Greg Huffman. I'm the commander of the Gerald R. Ford Strike Group. Uh, very excited to have you all out here as we are kicking off our inaugural deployment of the strike group. You've already seen today, we've got uh, uh, our strike group staff embarked. We've got the destroyer squadron staff, so that's destroyer squadron two. Uh, we've got carrier air wing eight uh, staff out here and their aircraft are uh, actually in the process of coming out and doing carrier qualifications. Uh, and then we've got the entire Gerald R. Ford team out here. So uh, this is the beginning of our first deployment. Uh, we're gonna operate uh, in the Atlantic for the next couple of months working with uh, the entire strike group, which will be the Gerald R. Ford as the flagship, uh, Carrier Air Wing 8, Destroyer Squadron 2, uh, USS Normandy, uh, USS McFall, USS Ramage, and USS Thomas Hudner. Uh, we'll also be working with a number of allies and partners. Uh, so uh, during the first portion, we'll be working with ships from Germany, uh, Spain, and Canada. And then we'll be adding more ships later on from uh, the Netherlands, uh, France, and Denmark. So pretty exciting to have all of our allies and partners uh, working with us. So this is a great opportunity for us to get the Gerald R. Ford Strike Group out into an operational mode and start uh, really working through the capabilities of the Strike Group, uh, both the, the Ford itself with its new uh, technology, as well as working with allies and partners uh, and, and working it up into an operational mindset. So we're getting an opportunity to uh, really hone our warfighting skills uh, and then get our interoperability with allies and partners uh, built up. Uh, this deployment is uh, something that was not originally scheduled for this year, uh, but we saw the opportunity to uh, get the Gerald R. Ford out and, uh, and then take it on its first deployment uh, and then expand on its capabilities and really get a good understanding of, uh, of its operational capabilities working both with uh, U.S. ships and allies and partners. For this uh, deployment, we'll be operating under uh, Second Fleet uh, the entire time. So this is this is part of an initiative to work uh, blending the Second Fleet and the Sixth Fleet uh, AORs so that we've got a one Atlantic concept. And we've got the ability to seamlessly work across uh, both the traditional uh, homeland defense and, and western part of the Atlantic into uh, more than what's traditionally been the Sixth Fleet area of operations into the, uh, the Eastern Atlantic. Uh, and so for this deployment, we'll be operating strictly under uh, Second Fleet, and then they will be shifting their um, uh, command and control structure under NAVUR at different times as we're operating throughout the area. The whole point of an aircraft carrier, of course, is to operate and deploy with aircraft. Captain Daryl Trent is the commander of Carrier Air Wing 8, and has been building up experience operating with the Ford for some months now. He spoke to us from the ship's flag bridge about what he hopes to accomplish during the cruise and about some of the differences for his aviators and crew members in operating on a new class of ship. There's a bit of crackle in the audio from the radio frequency interference around the ship's island structure, but I think it's okay. 
my responsibility is to embark um, as many aircraft as we're allotted. So we're going to bring out roughly 80% of a normal uh, fitted air wing on board. We're going to have every flavor of aircraft that we have out here uh, from uh, our Romeos and Sierra helicopters uh, to F-18s. We have a couple variants of F-18s that are on board. We have Growlers and we have the E-2D Advanced Hawkeye on board as well. So we have eight squadrons that are embarking and we've also brought about 80% of our personnel uh, to support the aircraft to, that we have on board from the air wing. Air wings generally comprised of about 1,900 uh, sailors and that is from myself all the way down uh, that, that perform our services on board the ship. So our job is to come out and uh, carry qualification, which is what we're working on uh, today. is going to be a big day for carrier qualifications for us. Uh, we're going to uh, knock that out of the park today, and then we're going to transition to what we call cyclic ops. So that is the ability for us to launch, we'll say, in, in a maybe 10, 12, 15 aircraft at one time during an event, get airborne, go out, do whatever mission sets we've been assigned for those air crew, come back, land, and then launch another set of aircraft uh, while we're recovering that first wave that actually took off. So our goal is to slowly ramp up and do reps and sets on the Ford at a level we've not done up to this point. And that's what this underway is for us. So we're doing a lot of, you know, it's a journey of discovery for us to find out anything that we were missing, anything we didn't know, um, and just frankly take our air crew, like any air wing, regardless whether it's the Ford or a Nimitz class, you know, the air wings that are embarked on there, is to take those, those sailors out and those officers out we're constantly having turnover of our personnel. You know, you'll be on sea duty, which is what we're at right now. We'll be on sea duty for a period of time, and those folks will eventually transfer to shore duty. Will we get new new personnel on board? So we've got to train those folks as well. So again, we're going to go as fast as uh, safe uh, that we can operate out here, and we're going to slowly just ramp that up day after day after day. So things are going to progressively uh, get more intense with us out here. Um, the amount of errors and mistakes we make, I think, will be a lot less uh, over time. But that's kind of our goal out here is to do that part of it, and also the other piece. Of it is working with our coalition uh, partners that are out here with us. So if you kind of look around, we've got some uh, non-U.S. vessels that are uh, integrated with the CSG. That's important to us as well. We do not fight alone. Uh, that is one of our strengths in the U.S. Navy is we work with our allies and partners, and we are successful because we work with our allies and partners. And we've got them out here today, so we'll integrate them uh, with us as well. So, so operating from this ship, it's a new design. It's a new, it's a new flight deck layout. Uh, the hangar deck isn't isn't much different, but it is different. Uh, there are different stations or different patterns as you move around the ship. Uh, how can you talk from a more operational on the deck point of view? Yes, sir. This is the beauty of the Ford. Um, the things that I like, you know, as the air wing commander, what is important to me, what matters to me, is our ability for efficient operations. If I cannot launch aircraft, um, recover them, fuel them, rearm them, and launch them again efficiently um, on a timetable that we need. Uh, to meet our requirements ashore. That's our responsibility is um, projection power ashore. That's what we do. Um, that's our number one priority. Our job is if directed, you know, if I need a target to go away, we have, you know, our air crew are prepared and trained to make that disappear. But I can't do that if I can't effectively launch and recover off the ship. But the, the important piece is that we also have, when you look at some, what are the differences between the Ford and maybe the Nimitz class that I, you know, use daily that makes a huge difference for our capability it's frankly uh you know i'll use refueling for example the difference between a nimitz and a uh, ford class is the ability that we have uh, fuel wells built into the deck that i can put an aircraft in a spot and i've got a fuel hose immediately i can immediately uh, refuel that aircraft you know what will happen is an aircraft will come in from a mission it'll land trap we will check it out see if there's any uh, any issues with the systems on board that the pilot reports when he lands we'll get that aircraft turned around 
And so that turnaround piece is the thing that I think is so critical. Our ability to refuel an aircraft, and then our, you'll, you'll, we'll probably talk at some point about the advanced weapons elevators as well. That's another amazing capability uh, that we have in the sense of arming our aircraft. Aircraft are no good on the flight deck, um, just sitting here static. They're of no value to us. We've got to get those things armed and airborne so we can actually go, you know, target target whatever we need to target and uh, and bring that aircraft back and rearm it again. Can't ar rearm them airborne. I can get gas airborne, but I cannot rearm an aircraft airborne. So our ability to efficiently do that. So one of the things you'll notice is how far aft the island that we're standing in right now, how far aft that actually is. As we look at this, you look at the amount of flight deck that we have in front of us, we can stage a significant amount of aircraft that are ready for takeoff on CATS 1 and 2 that I can still uh, recover aircraft at the same time. So if I'm able to launch aircraft, recover aircraft as well, um, and then rearm them and get them out of here, they're back in the fight immediately. That is a significant, significant capability that the Ford has based on the design uh, that she was given um, that is a game changer for us. For your squadrons, was there, what kind of orientation, what kind of training is there for these pilots who are obviously are familiar with a different class carrier? Every other carrier is pretty much the same, similar. And this one is different. So you've got, you've got different flow to the flight deck, different parking stations. People have to move to different areas that they're not automatically used to going to. A lot of our junior uh, folks that come aboard, they, they may have seen a Nimitz class, uh, to your point, and it's, this ship is not laid out the same way. Um, we certainly give training to our junior sailors on exactly how to uh, maneuver and navigate around the ship, but this ship is grossly different uh, from the amount of elevators that you'll see that are on the flight deck um, to some of the hatches that we have that are around the ship. Um, for our air crew, we actually hold a detailed training of the layout of the ship. Um, the ship, you know, we have a lot of common terms that we use on the ship um, as far as where positions are on the ship. There's also some additional ones uh, that we use that air crew are required to fully understand. Um, so we have briefs uh, for the air crew. So when you're taxiing around, but the bottom line is, you know, every aviator is trained. When you're taxiing around, you'll notice we have plane directors that tell us these, these are the gentlemen that, uh, and ladies that are in um, yellow jerseys. They are taxiing us around the aircraft. We've got to literally follow their direction on exactly what they want to do. That is no different no matter what uh, class of ship you're on. As is well known, the Ford's design incorporates several new technologies and systems all entering service at the same time, and developmental problems with several of those systems are well known. In talking to those operating the systems, we got a general sense of improvement all around. No one is claiming victory, no one declares they're now where they want to be, but virtually everyone we spoke with on the ship takes pains to point to steady improvement. The problematic weapons elevators, 11 elevators that used new electromagnetic technology rather than hydraulic power, are all operational. Several people we spoke with talked about a recent ammunition onload from a supply ship. All said that over the course of two and a half days, the system performed as intended, and that while there were problems from time to time, none led to any, any kind of system failure. Some problems were cleared in a few seconds, we were told, while the longest downtime for any single elevator was about 20 minutes. The system at several points performed at a higher pace than the ammunition could be loaded onto the ship, we were told. Another area of concern is the launch and recovery systems, the vaunted EMOLS, Electromagnetic Aircraft Launch System, and the AAG Advanced Arresting Gear. We spoke with the officer in charge of maintaining those systems, Ensign Justin Knighton, a newly minted limited-duty engineering officer who spent several years working with his systems. He spoke with us from one of the advanced arresting gear compartments, so there's a good bit of background, background noise here. But first up, he spoke about the arresting gear. We've gone from a very archaic way of catching aircraft, per se, with hydraulics uh, that 
slowly advance into some electronic upgrades. Uh, with this new system, we are able to put less stress on the ship, on the system itself, and on the aircraft. Um, there's a lot more sense of reliability as far as being able to recover the aircraft safely, uh, a lot more redundancy, uh, like I said, just a lot better overall as far as taking care of the aircraft and the longevity of the life of the aircraft and the uh, equipment. So as with all new systems, you know, like I said, I've been here for the last six and a half years, we're, we're going through reliability. You know, Nimitz class carriers have been around for 50 plus years, so it, we are, every time we do have an upgrade or we do make a change, whether it's software or hardware, uh, you know, it, it brings to light different things around it. Uh, other pieces of equipment that it's connected to, other computers that it's connected to, uh, and we work, we're working through the issues. Longevity-wise, we have gotten a lot more proficient. A lot of that has to do with our operators becoming a lot more involved in the systems, having repetition behind the wheel, being able to identify things at quicker levels, uh, and then as new software comes out or we have new hardware changes, kind of take a little step back, takes us a little time to get used to the new, new stuff, identify reliability issues, and come through them and work with our engineering team up in Lakehurst to develop a, uh, what we call engineering change proposal to come through that in the long run. So specifically, um, we're, kind of, we're kind of working on some uh, mostly mechanical stuff uh, that's kind of sensor issues, things like that, um, just imbalances in certain little things. So uh, as far as getting into the technical details, uh, can't do that here, but um, we are working very hard with the engineering team to come through the very minute issues that we have come across, especially in the last six months. So. You've got General Atomics people on board, right? Section on board supporting you? Yes, we, did, uh, we do have two, uh, excuse me, yeah, two General Atomics techs on board, uh, and they've been helping us. One's a software guy, one's a mechanical guy, uh, and they're basically standing by in the event that we need them. So, what kind of reliability have you got with this thing? It's definitely getting better. Uh, is it where we want to be in you know ten years? Absolutely not. Uh, we are getting a lot closer day by day, um, and we're also doing a lot of the discovery rate for the next three carriers that we've already you know paid for as well. So. Um, as far as reliability, we have over 10,000 traps, all of that on board, not to include the traps that were conducted at Rawls, uh, which is the roll-in aircraft landing site up in Lakehurst. Henson Knighton then talked about the reliability of the EMOS launch system. We've gotten very good at coming through minor issues. Uh, we do not have hardly any catastrophic issues that take us down for extended periods of time. Uh, we do have minor issues here and there that we need to troubleshoot out the day. Uh, a lot of that is uh, the mass amount of redundancy and sensors that we do have within the system. Uh, and we're working with Navier uh, Lakehurst Engineering to come through the, the amount of redundancy so we can kind of tailor the system to what we need it to perform at to stay at a highly reliable rate. Uh, if the system goes down, depending on where it's at, um, it could be you know, a pair of cats down, and that's how the system is designed, and we can come through that. A lot of the stuff we can mitigate and a lot of the stuff we can really navigate through, but we just we really haven't had as many issues in the last six months than we've had uh, you know, in the beginning working towards. We've been on a very positive trail coming through, especially with all the engineering change proposals. Uh, we've done a lot of engineering investigations on parts that we found non-reliable uh, that were supposed to be very reliable in the beginning. Uh, we've had more robust changes for a lot of those things to, uh, to make sure that they're not failing. Um, and things have gotten really good with emails, especially in the last, I'd say, two years. So, so when something goes down, they go down in pairs, so the 
the forward cats will be down, but you can still operate the waste cats? Right, so they can, yes. If certain things happen in the high power areas, uh, then yes, the paracats will be down. But uh, a lot of our issues, especially during the daytime and during operations, we, it's in non-high power areas. So it has to do with sensor issues or hydraulic issues or little things like that, that we, we stop performing on that catapult. We still continue to operate from the other one and it gives our operators time to go troubleshoot and make minor repairs so we can get the catapult back up. Same as Nimitz. So, um, we, like I said, we really don't have as many high power issues that we used to have uh, coming through, you know, over 10,000 launches with aircraft. So, um, it, it's been less effective to, less affecting to us uh, as far as if we lose a pair of catapults, which is not, it doesn't happen very often as much. So. Some people think that if one goes down, the whole system goes down. Uh, not, and that's not com not true. Um, it's not yeah. It's not completely true. Yes, if if we degrade the system so much and we just conti continue to lose components overall, eventually yes, the whole system is going to go down. But that's we've never we've gotten to that point once in the early early years of reliability, and that was due to software issues. So yes, that type of stuff where there's miscoding in the software, yes. But again, that was. You know, years and years ago, we have not had issues like that since. So. And lastly, we spoke with ship's commanding officer, Captain Paul Lanzalotta, who's been in command of the Ford for nearly two years. He spoke with us from the hangar bay about what he hopes to get out of this cruise, what lies ahead next year for the carrier, and right at the end, in response to a question, he added in some thoughts about operating with the French Navy and their aircraft carrier, Charles de Gaulle. Early, early on, when the ship first put out to sea, the uh, I think the the goals were simple. They were, they were about, hey, let's make sure the gear, the technologies work. Do the basic functions of our technologies work? Do they operate safely? That kind of thing. And then after that, during our post-delivery test and trial period, we got further into, hey, what is the reliability like? Can we make it work all the time? Can we use these tools consistently, day in and day out? And now that we're deploying, uh, we're operating the ship further from home, using our own organic self-sufficient means that the United States Navy does for all of its ships for logistics support, product support. Can we repair ourselves when things have a, uh, have a fault or something like that? So I really wanna learn about uh, the areas where we need to improve our logistics posture so that we can operate far from home for long periods of time like modern navies do. So one year ago in early October of 2021, the ship was in the shipyard in Newport News Shipbuilding uh, getting some modernization done, a short period, only about six months total, but since from then, which was right after our shock trial, to right now, we've done things like add four gun systems to the ship. So our Mark 38 uh, gun weapon system, for example, was installed, structurally test-fired, proven in combat systems operational rehearsals, We've destroyed targets at sea that are maneuvering and non-compliant with those guns. We have sailors that have trained with those guns. That's just one system that was modernized during our planned incremental availability. Pretty awesome. It makes the ship that much more defendable. It makes us more lethal on the high seas. That's awesome. Uh, you probably might have heard some guns firing this morning while we were doing our, uh, our, our general quarters drill. We used all of the other guns in that case. We used our, our 50 caliber machine guns. Our crew is up on step. The other thing that's different is our mindset. Our mindset is operational. How do we use the ship on the high seas away from home with our allies and partners? Less interested in the testing, does it work? We already know all this stuff works. Now we want to use it. 
So after we return, we'll be, uh, we'll be coming home right before the holiday period. Intend to take care of my crew first and foremost. It's important for service members to get a chance to reunite with their families after they've been gone, gone a while. Um, we're gonna do some continuous maintenance items. We always do, we always do repair. Not so much modernization. We may be uh, fleshing out some of those logistic points that I brought up earlier. Where do we need to have more onboard repair parts? That kind of thing, we can, we can fill out the ship's uh, readiness in terms of supply uh, before we do the next set of workups. Uh, but no shipyards. Uh, we will do some unit level training, both in port and at sea. We'll go to sea again. Uh, so we're an operating in-service carrier. We will continue to use the ship. Then we will continue to uh, integrate and advance our, our training posture. And then we'll go on the, the longer deployment. This ship, it was built as a new class with a lot of expanded capability, but also margin for more. Um, so while our, our propulsion plant is new and is pushing us through the water at a good pace right now, although it feels placid, like we're not even moving that fast, we're going faster than you'd probably comfortably able be able to do in a 100-foot yacht right now. Um, that propulsion plant is really amazing. The electrical generation capacity of the ship is not even close to being taxed. So as things develop in the coming years, as advanced weapons come online for, from the United States side, I expect those to be able to be installed on the ship, whether it's in a yards period or some other modernization period, and bring our lethality up even higher over the course of the ship's life, which is 50, I don't know, maybe 60 years. Part of what we're doing here is operating the air wing with the Probably the biggest number, definitely the biggest number of aircraft will, will be on the ship here within a day or two once we're done with our carrier qualifications. Once we get to that highest level of aircraft, we're going to start learning about the benefits of things like in-deck refueling stations that are newer and more convenient than the old kind on the older ships where you can refuel straight from the, the flight deck instead of having to pull a fuel hose across the flight deck. We're going to see what speed that, that, that gives us. We're gonna see where there are human limitations, where we can help our sailors with either training or, or preparation for the kinds of operations that we'll do and how, we, how can we be faster and better in that way. I have a feeling it's gonna be a lot about the sailors, about the human element um, as we get better and better. The French Navy and the United States Navy have a long history of operating together on the high seas. And it's really cool when we get to operate near a French carrier because they're aircraft are actually certified to land on our ships and our aircraft are actually certified to land on on the Gaul. So, uh, so it's really exciting to operate with French Naval Aviation because they use similar systems to us. They use arrested landings and tail hooks and they use the, a catapult launch system. Uh, whenever we are in the vicinity of, the, of a French aircraft carrier, we immediately start operating together in an interchangeable fashion. That's true allied operations. I'm excited for the opportunity to do that. Uh, whenever that happens, whether it's during this, this period or if we operate in the Mediterranean together in the future. All told, this was overall my sixth visit to the Ford, twice while she was under construction at Newport News Shipbuilding and the fourth time at sea since November 2019. It's been a real evolution. Sometimes I can even still picture shipyard workers in the passageways. I've been lucky to have experienced three landing and takeoff cycles, getting getting the, at least as much of a feel for the AAG and EMOL systems as you can from the perspective of a passenger on board a C2 COD cargo aircraft. This ship and its crew have really come a long way. There was much we saw and much we didn't see, largely because of classification restrictions, but the ship exudes a sense of optimism. 
All good crews want to get their ship to sea and have a mission. And the Ford, not just the U.S. Navy's, but also the world's most expensive ship ever built, finally seems to be on that path. Now hear this. Now hear this. Thanks, Chris. Following up on your visit to the Ford, I want to footstomp how important this deployment is for the U.S. Navy. Not only is it important to learn lessons about how the new systems perform in a deployment setting, but it is vitally important that the Navy get past all of the negativity and controversy associated with how the Ford class got to this point. I won't recap or belabor all the hiccups that the Navy and the shipbuilder went through to get us here. Our listeners know it was a long and torturous road. That said, a successful deployment of ringing out all of the new systems and sharing the lessons learned with the public would go a long way in shaking the monkey off the program's back. Both for the internal and external skeptics, the Navy needs to over-communicate the successes and setbacks from the forward deployment. They need to show this is a real ship going through a real deployment, and that when called upon, the technology and the crew will respond to whatever tasking is asked of it. Your visit and the coverage of the ship getting underway was an excellent first step. Let's hope that approach continues throughout the deployment. Thanks, Chris. And before we go, I want to express my thanks to everyone in the U.S. Navy. Well, there's a lot of people from U.S. Second Fleet to uh, Fleet Forces Command, and of course, the ship itself, who were great help in, in, uh, in, in, in my getting on board and talking to people. Thank you, folks, very, very much. Well, that does it for this week. And as always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.